Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks ended flat, Twitter's slowing quarterly user growth disappointed investors, and Hong Kong stocks fell as the Hong Kong-Shanghai bourse link is still in question. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll discuss markets and company earnings with Mark Matthews of Julius Baer. Alberto Moel of Sanford Bernstein will also talk about the smartphone endgame in China. And Frederick Ockvist of China Rai will speak to us about the mainland online, online payment system, Yebao. Financial commentator Andrew Sullivan will also be joining us through the half hour as co-host. First, a look at uh, today's top stories. U.S. stocks have ended near flat, pausing after the S&P 500's biggest weekly gain since January 2013, while energy shares fell with another decline in oil prices. The Dow rose 0.07% to 16,817. The S&P lost uh, 0.15% to 1,961. And the Nasdaq added uh, just 0.5% to 4,400. The majority of companies are beating earnings expectations, with results in from 213 of the S&P 500 companies. 71% beat analysts' forecasts, which would be the highest percentage since the third quarter of 2011. In Brazil, President Dilma Rousseff uh, won re-election this last weekend in the closest presidential race since the country returned to democracy in 1985. But markets are not liking the result. The Brazilian stock market tumbled, approaching a bear market for the second time this year. And the Brazilian real fell to a nine-year low against the dollar. Jorge Mariscal, who is the chief, inve- chief investment officer of emerging markets at UBS, said that he expected her to win by the narrow margin that she did in a very competitive re-election, but... Now, the problem is for her is that 50% of the population voted against her. And that 50% happens to be the part of the population that invests. And without them, Brazil is condemned to low growth and low productivity. So she needs to do something to reconcile with this half of the population that determines the future of Brazil. I'd like to bring in uh, my guest now, Mark Matthews of Julius Spare. Good morning, Mark. Morning. And thank you for joining us. Uh, you're not usually here. You're based in Singapore. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Likewise. Thank you. Okay. Um, Mark, markets have been somewhat bipolar of late. Uh, following the best week of the year for stocks, the S&P 500 has now nearly wiped out all of October's losses. Some analysts are saying that we still have a chance to see the markets deliver double-digit gains this year. Do you agree? Uh, never say never, but um, I think that you know this is proving to be a, a year of uh, how should I say contemplation and consolidation because uh, obviously we've just come off a stream of uh, very good years. But I think that when you look at the PE for the world, let's just say it's broadly around twelve times price earnings ratio for the world in t- in line with its long term average. If we do see uh, a little earnings growth around the world and interest rates staying uh, pretty low, and I think we're going to see both of those things. Then uh, stocks can rise, um, and uh, I, and then so I, I'm not going to say we're going to get a double digit return between now and the end of the year, but I believe stocks will be higher than where they are now, 12 months from now. Okay, so definitely consistent with what we're hearing from some of the other analysts. Now, when you say that PE for the world is 12, can you put that into context for our listeners? What does that actually mean? 
Uh, well, it means that you have to uh, wait. Uh, we have to pay twelve years worth of earnings to uh, to 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 buy the stock, basically. And so, I would say anything below ten is ballpark considered to be cheap, and anything above um, what would I say? <clears throat> above twenty is considered to be expensive. So, fifteen is considered to be fair value. I'm just using very very broad strokes. So, where we are now at twelve. This is a little bit on the um, inexpensive side, if you look back in history. Now, this is world PE that that you're talking about. So as a lay investor, you know, the question that comes to mind is where in the world should I go? (laughs) You know, do I look at developed markets, um, you know, and and sort of the rah-rah and not be afraid of the bipolarity that we've talked about in the West? Or should I be looking at emerging emerging markets? We talk about emerging markets and BRIC, but, you know, is the... For example, the re-election of President Dilma Rousseff, should I just be avoiding uh, Brazil, you know, from that point of view? Well, um, she did say in her inaugural speech that she wanted uh, to have the other side, um, you know, participate in um, in the next uh, however many years she has of, of her uh, of her tenure. But I think that your previous uh, your previous uh, commentator was bang on that um, the people who have the money are not happy with this result. But anyway, to answer your question, where should you invest? Um, I find you know I've been sort of a fun financial advisor in one way or another for over 20 years that it's very hard to uh, talk about um, many things. The more things you talk about, the greater likelihood you are to get them wrong. So I'll just pick one, which is my top thing, and that's China. And I like China for many reasons, but to pick the first, it's trading on around seven times earnings, whereas, as I said, the world market's on 12. So it's almost half the price of the world market. And why that doesn't make sense in my mind is that it has the third best return on equity in the world at about 15%. Only uh, Indonesia and India have higher returns on equity. So cheapest stock market in the world after Russia, but third best return on equity in the world after uh, those two other Asian countries. And then the other point I'll make very quickly is that I can't guarantee stocks will be up 12 months from now on a world basis. I think they will. But what I like about China is it's the most uncorrelated uh, large asset in the world I can find. And to give you the number, uh, the weekly correlation going back 10 years between the Shanghai Composite Index and the MSCI World Index is 0.17, which is basically irrelevant. Uh, Hang Seng has a correlation of about 0.7. So it will do its own thing regardless of the rest of the world. Well, that's certainly good news for us uh, that it's not the end of cheap China just yet, just just when we were beginning to think that it might be. <laughs> okay, Mark, uh, Goldman Sachs has slashed its 2015 oil pros- price forecasts. Uh, it expects the U.S. West Texas intermediate crude to fall to $75 a barrel and Brent to fall to $85 a barrel in the first quarter of next year. Now, that means both will be down uh, $15 a barrel from its previous forecast. What do you think? I, I can't really explain this sudden collapse in the oil price, but I'll, I'll make two points about it. Um, the first is that I don't think oil should go up. I think it's structurally uh, an unappealing asset for the very simple reason that North America is becoming a, a large exporter of oil due to the shale oil and gas in the United States and the oil sands in Canada and increased technology that uh, helps underwater exploration, underwater, underwater extraction. So point number one is there's going to be a lot more supply, which should naturally push down the price. Point number two, how to invest in oil. 
apart from being short oil stocks. I'll just say that Bank of America found there were 11 occasions since 1990 when the oil price dropped 20% or more in three months. And um, I'm sure you know there's one big emerging economy that benefits more than any other from this collapse in the oil price is India because they've got more than a billion people. It's a $1.5 trillion economy, but they don't have enough energy of their own. So anyway, if you look at the Indian stock market, subsequent to these prices collapses in oil, these 11 occasions since 1990, uh, eight out of the 11 times it went up. And the average of all 11 times was an increase of 17%. So the way to play oil is actually to buy India. To buy India, indeed. Specifically just for oil or should we be buying India anyway? Oh, we should buy it anyway. I think it's a wonderful long-term story. And now with Modi in power, it's the opposite of Brazil, really. Is there anything that you can point to specifically in India? I mean, should we be looking at tech? Should we be looking at infrastructure, Um, financials? I know that, you know, Modi is focusing on all of these areas um, amongst others. Uh, Well, you mentioned infrastructure. I do like that one for the obvious, uh, you know, you just go to India, it's pretty obvious they need a lot of it. But the one sector, if I I would only pick one to own, is financials. Um, In other words, banks and insurance companies because uh, household debt to GDP uh, in India is the lowest of any any major economy in the world. And um, and I think that now that inflation is starting to come down quite a bit and it's, it's below their target for the end of next year even and this great boon in the collapse in the oil price, uh, the Reserve Bank of India does have the ability to cut rates if they want. Okay, great. Well, in company news, uh, Twitter has reported revenue of $361 million in the third quarter, beating Wall Street estimates. It came in right on target on earnings per share, recording its first profit of one cent. Fourth quarter guidance was also on the money. Twitter raised its financial projections to a range of $440 million to $450 million. Analysts had estimated $448 million. But all this wasn't good enough because shares plunged as much as 13% in after-hours trading. The main challenge dragging down Twitter appears to be a growing concern that its service does still not have broad stream appeal. CEO Dick Costello defined the Twitter audience. Is it the core? You have those 284 million monthly active users who create all the content that's used across the rest of the entire system. In the circle beyond that, you have the hundreds of millions of users who come to Twitter but don't log in. Those logged out users, and we've talked about the size of that audience a little bit. And then thirdly, you have the circle beyond that, which is the syndicated audience. The number of monthly active users grew to 284 million in the third quarter, up almost 5% from 271 million in the second quarter. But the pace at which Twitter is adding users slowed down from previous quarters despite an overhaul of a new user experience, sowing seeds of doubt with investors. Robert Peck of SunTrust Robinson Humphrey has trouble with how the metrics are gauged. How big is that base? They said two to three X their MAUs. And how can they actually monetize that base? The other part is their MAUs. They've said historically about 11 percent or so that come through are coming through a third party platform. They can't target directly. And about almost nine percent of them or so don't have any activity at all. So you want to get an idea as far as the actual user base and then the activity side of things. If they're looking at timeline views and that's not the right metric, 
Well, what is the right metric to actually go after and how should the, the Wall Street community actually gauge the performance? One of the top things you, Wall Street's looking for is give us a way to gauge activity metrics. If you're favoriting things, if you're forwarding tweets, retweeting, how do we think about all that combined? Because at the end of the day, we want to think about monetization and where can the ARPU go that Facebook has, quite honestly. Amazon is buying online comedy service Rooftop Media as the internet retailer pursues its ambition of building a digital media library to rival Netflix. The deal is small, but it underscores Amazon's intention of buying content to round out its online service. However, its spending on digital media has helped keep the company in the red, inviting criticism from investors. Audible, the audiobook service that it bought in 2008, is picking up the 10-person startup for an undisclosed sum. They said that they uh, were attracted by Rooftop's content and pool of comic talent. Mark, uh, Amazon has been the subject of quite some criticism recently. Do you think it can compare, compete with uh, Netflix? Actually, I have to pass on that. I'm not an expert on um, either company. Sorry about that. That's fine. Andrew, what do you think? Well, I think as is, as it was said in the, uh, the, the the clip you had there, it's actually about content, and it's actually more about monetizing it. And this is what a lot of these companies have problems in, in doing. They're great features, but how do you make money out of them? Well, this is it. I mean, this is the reason why Twitter has come under the gun today, despite sort of strong fourth quarter earnings. Um, is Twitter's growth, do you see it as a problem? I mean, it hasn't changed its offerings, you know, all that much. Um, it appears to be continuing to rely on a growing user base. What are Wall Streeters actually looking for? Are they looking for just consistent growth with the way things are? Or are they looking for the companies to constantly make a change? Well, I think it's really about, um, you know, if, if you look back to when we first got, you know, smartphones and, and more media content, it was a matter of, you know, great, we have media content, but it's always the problem about monetizing it. And, and Twitter is the same. There's a lot of people that follow this thing and they'll make a they'll make a twit. But how do you actually really make money out of it? How do you actually, you know, leverage that? And that's the problem these companies are having. It's, it's, it's a fad, it's a phase, but will it last? And that's really the problem that Wall Street is going to come to is how do we make consistent returns out of this? Because, you know, the underlying, the, the, the operators, the, the mobile phones, you know, they are a good conduit for these things but they are only the conduit so it's rather like a utility you know people will use it but how do you leverage it and that's the real problem that we're now coming to because people have started using it but how do you get the growth to go exponential and that's very difficult Indeed. Well, Apple's mobile payment technology has run into a roadblock just a week after its introduction at CVS and Rite Aid, two major U.S. pharmacies. Piper Jaffray, senior research analyst Gene Munster, says it isn't a big deal. That they were not announced customers, and this whole merchant customer exchange is really a dream of merchants to be able to somehow get the credit card companies out of the transaction. It's going to be a very tough road to haul. And Target has signed up with Apple Pay, and that's one of the merchants that's listed as a uh, in the MCX uh, uh, consortium. And so you've already had a major defect. So I wouldn't be surprised if over time you start seeing players like CVS drift back to Apple Pay. And speaking of online payment systems, the question is, are cracks developing at Alibaba's online payment system, Yebao? We're joined on the phone uh, on, well, actually, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Chris, Chris Oliver, who has a story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Uh, Yebao is the wealth management fund run by Alibaba. Uh, and the news is that it's seen its first outflow since it was set up last year. 
the wealth management product has a net value of around 87.5 billion U.S. dollars. So on quarter, that's a drop of about 6.4 billion. So we're joined on the phone uh, at the moment by Frederick Ogvist. He's founder of the research and investment intelligence firm China RAI. Good morning, uh, Frederick. Good morning, Chris. Uh, so what what are the reasons for the outflows from uh, Yebao? Well, it's a little bit hard to say at the moment. There's a lot of theories out there. Um, one that seems to hold water for me is that what people did with Yebao was essentially Alibaba showed them that there was a way to make more money through their money than simply you know having them in the regular bank balances, right? And so that increased the risk appetite. And now that uh, Yebao isn't offering as high interest rates anymore, it, when it started, it was about maybe 6 or 7% annualized. Now it's down to 4%. They're now looking for money to go elsewhere for better yields on their, um, on their investment money. So it might be that they've actually created their own problem here. Uh, and money now seems to be flowing into more speculative uh, measures. So did, uh, one idea might be that it's flowing into the uh, the other wealth management products that are now offering between 10 and 14%. Just, just to give a bit of context for listeners, uh, this is a remarkable story because in in just over the year that it was launched, it's managed to draw in 81 million investors. And as I said earlier, the uh, the net value of the fund was about 90 billion U.S. dollars. According to uh, Investor uh, Intelligence magazine, that makes it the fastest growing mutual fund of all time. Yeah, I mean, that is the power of, uh, of, well, number one, China, and also the sort of the lack of financial investment options in China. There has been an extreme appetite for decent investment products for everyday people that banks simply haven't been, uh, been able to fulfill over the past few years. So when Yebao came from uh, Alipay, it was an instant hit. And I mean, even though we've seen 7% outflows this month, it it doesn't take away from the fact that this has been a resounding success. And what, one of the attractions of this platform is that you can actually purchase it over your smartphone. You can purchase it over your smartphone. The minimum investment is uh, one RMB. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely perfect. It's accessible. It's easy to understand. Um, you get a little um, a feed saying what the current rate is. You put your money in. There are some controls for how much you can take out, but really, for most everyday people in China, it doesn't really come into play. So it's essentially used more or less like a bank account and then feeds into your uh, your Alipay account. Now, I, I know that Baidu and Tencent have also been rolling out some of their own products to compete in this space. Are, are those also seen, uh, you know, are they getting uptake by consumers? They're getting uptake, but because they're uh, second movers, they're getting nowhere near this sort of, uh, same media play. They haven't been as successful. Um, there is a growing worry in uh, Alibaba, it seems at least, that uh, Tencent might be able to come up with something to, uh, to rival Alipay as well because of, um, of WeChat. But we haven't really seen that materialize yet. And, and just uh, switching gears here for a moment, so Weibao is the Chinese version of Twitter. Uh, we know that there were disappointing results uh, from Twitter last night. Do you expect that to have a flow-through effect on this uh, NASDAQ-listed entity? Well, perhaps, but Weibo is battling with its own problems. It's a little bit similar to Twitter. They're, um, they're battling with slowing growth numbers. They're not making any money. Um, Really, what they're struggling for right now in China is relevance, um, because ever since uh, WeChat came along, 
user growth has diminished. There's been a lot of accusations of fake accounts on Weibo. So it's very hard to actually gauge properly what the what the actual number is. I mean, it, it's absolutely astounding the number of fake accounts that you see on, on Weibo. It's, it's scary at times. But um, I'd be surprised if it doesn't have some sort of uh, impact on Weibo. I, I would expect investors to say, well, if Twitter is the model we're basing it on, we're not seeing the growth and the profitability we want there. How is it going to work here in China? Uh, now, the for- one thing that Weibo does have going for it is a tie-in with Alibaba, Mm. To uh, to try to monetize through um, Tmall and through um, uh, through Taobao. Uh, Frederick, uh, Andrew Sullivan, our guest host uh, for this morning, just mentioned that one of the biggest problems we're seeing with these companies is how are they going to monetize? We're just not seeing enough evidence of that. And we've certainly seen that sort of in analyst discussion earlier this morning about Twitter. Would you say that that is sort of the key problem with Weibao or is it what you've brought up, you know, all these fake user accounts or are the two correlated? The two are probably correlated. Um Weibo, what they're trying to do now um, that we don't really see with Twitter is the time that they have through the investment from Alibaba, which presumably is what they're looking to do is to tie it into Tmall and to Taobao, which are the two biggest online marketplaces in China. So it'll be interesting to see if we can see a decent amount of sort of traction gaining there. That will be very good and very promising for investors. We haven't really seen it yet. And uh, as I said, one of the earliest signs of trouble in any internet company is when it's battling for relevancy. Thank you very much. Uh, that's uh, Frederick Ogdvist. He's a founder of China RAI. And thank you, Chris Oliver. The time is now 8.24 a.m. Andrew, would you say that Frederick Arkvist has actually confirmed your doubts about the growth of uh, tech companies or uh, put a different spin on it? Well, I think yeah, it, it's still at the end of the day that investors want to see return, and that's the big problem we have a, with a number of the internet companies at the moment. It's how do we make money out of them? Okay. Um, Mark, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, just listening in on the conversation, Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Alibaba, are they services we're going to use for the next 10, 20 years? Are they they mediums that are going to last? And um, that's the million-dollar question in terms of whether you buy their stocks or not. I think if you look back in history, there were good stocks to own during, uh, you know, the the heydays of of various mediums, Bell Telephone, NBC Television, Nokia mobile phones. But my sense is probably the medium will change much more quickly in the next 10 years than it did when it moved from radio to television or copper wire to mobile. And uh, I doubt we will be using Twitter and Facebook 10 years from now. I can't tell you what it's going to be, but I think they'll be a little bit like Nokia or Sony or things like that. Okay, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and watch from more from uh, what you say is uh, cheap China. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Mark Matthews My of pleasure. Julius Baer. We'll be back to talk uh, with Alberto Moel about Chinese smartphone makers right after this. We each have our own way of enjoying the Victoria Harbourfront. 
we may also have different perspectives and ideas on enhancing this unique place. The Harbourfront Commission and the Development Bureau are now conducting the Phase 2 public engagement exercise for the proposed establishment of a Harbourfront Authority. Please take part and share your views on or before December 24, 2014. For details, please visit www.hfc.org.hk slash HAPE. Well, Chinese smartphone makers are gearing up for global competition. How will they make out in this hyper-competitive market has a lot to do with their size and financial firepower. Alberto Moel is a senior research analyst at Sanford Bernstein. He joins us now to give us his take. Good morning, Alberto. Good morning, good morning. So, Alberto, what is your outlook on Lenovo versus Xiaomi? Both have competitive handsets that compare with the best premium brands. Uh, well, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I mean, Xiaomi has done very well in China, has come out of nowhere and sold a, a material amount of handsets, uh, the number two or three player or number one, depends how you look at it or which month you're looking at it. Lenovo has also done the same uh, from a different perspective. It has come from a different portfolio. Uh, Lenovo's product portfolio is very pretty bread and butter, although Xiaomi is actually relatively outstanding in terms of its capability and its price performance. So, so Xiaomi has, has taken imagination, uh, people's imagination, a lot more than, than Lenovo. Uh, having said that, both of them need to go abroad. Uh, the Chinese handset market is very, very competitive. There's many brands coming in, very strange, very low. Everybody's basically beating up each other up uh, for to sell the same thing at lower and lower prices, and they need to go abroad. Having said that, uh, you have a problem. Uh, going abroad is going to be a fairly difficult uh, endeavor, and it's going to require capabilities that uh, that uh, that both companies have to develop, uh, meaning uh, di- uh, global distribution, global branding, global presence. And uh, in that respect, Lenovo is far, far further ahead than Xiaomi is. So Xiaomi's handsets, uh, you know, having said that, are making headway in Hong Kong. Uh, would you consider this a broad kind of or not quite? No, no. This is this is this is basically just across the border, right? Okay, <laughs> so not they, a broad they come enough. Over. <laughs> no, no. no we're talking, Political I mean, systems when to, aside, <laughs> when you go to the US, you're going to have to have so many things, or, or Europe, you're going to have to have so many things in place, uh, like IP protection, distribution, branding, marketing. Uh, that's it's just a much bigger. Yeah. Okay, quick question before we wrap up: What do you make of Lenovo's acquisition of Motorola's handset business from Google? Yeah, that's that's obviously part of Lenovo's uh, global strategy. I mean, they're trying to bulk up, get scale, get the distribution points in places where they didn't have any, uh, trying to get some patent portfolios, some development capabilities, some engineering talent, uh, a product portfolio, existing product portfolio, and a brand. So all that together, they figured it's easier to buy it than to build it. Uh, you know, whether they paid a lot or not remains to be seen, but uh, the idea is that they, they consider themselves a global brand that needs to go uh, needs to be established as a global brand, which all the elements of a global brand and, and Motorola seem to fit the bill for them. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Alberto Moel, Senior Research Analyst at Sanford Bernstein. A quick look at the numbers before we wrap up. Uh, one euro currently buys you 1.26 US dollars. One Great Britain pound buys you 12.5 Hong Kong dollars. And one US dollar buys you 107 yen. The Nikkei is open. It is down to tenth of a percent to 15,349. Australia's ASX index down three tenth of a percent to 5,400. 
421. And Sol's Cospi also down two-tenths of a percent to 1,928. Andrew, what are the things uh, on the economic calendar that we should be looking out for this week? Well, I think the big thing for most people will be the FOMC meeting in the U.S., but also we have uh, you know, industrial numbers out from China today. And we're also looking forward to the, uh, the, the, the data that comes out later in the week from Japan. We've had the retail sales this morning, but people will also be watching for inflation. And that's a key thing for Arbonomics. Thank you to my co-host, Andrew Sullivan. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day, slightly cooler with a maximum temperature of around 27 degrees. Currently, the temperature is 24 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 62%. Now it's time for the half-hour news. Pan-Democrats have attacked the government over what they say is its propaganda video of the Occupy protests. At the Legislative Council meeting yesterday, a 10-minute clip taken from the internet was shown as evidence of how the demonstrations had turned violent. The Secretary for Security, Lai Tung Kwok, accused the movement of turning into a campaign of hatred and violence rather than love and peace. But pan-Democratic legislators said the video failed to show the other side. Here's the Civic Party's Claudia Moe. The use of uh, the tear gas by the police out at uh, Admiralty. There was not one.